message this morning is entitled, Who is Your King? Who is Your King? Our text is from Mark chapter 12, so please find it there, Mark chapter 12. Mark 12, verses 13 to 17. Later, well, let's, let's back up to verse 12. So Mark 12, 12. Then they looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Now again, just for context, Jesus is now teaching in the temple area. And there are a number of forces at work here. First of all, there is the, the people themselves. The crowds who have been following Jesus, who have been listening to His words. It's at Passover time, and so those crowds have swelled to to multiply tens and hundreds of thousands of people. There's a, a whole lot of intensity and activity all around the temple courts. There's also the, the, the Jewish leaders who are present. There's Pharisees, there's Sadducees, there's Herodians, there's, there's others. There's all kinds of different Jewish sects and, and um, political parties and religious uh, parties and leaders. And There's all kinds of dynamics going on. And it tells us earlier in the Gospels that Jesus had set His face towards Jerusalem. He knows the destiny towards which He is going. But as the words of the Old Testament prophet, he has set his face like a flint. He's not backing off and he's not backing down. He's stepping forward into the destiny that God has for him. And he's having this ongoing interaction with all of this dynamics that are going on around him of crowds and leaders and others. And so, just last week we looked at Jesus' parable of the the tenants and the authority of Jesus. And it's in that context, and as he's told that parable, that those who are, are, are kind of coming up against him and saying, we're not... They, they know who he's talking about and they want to break Jesus' hold over the people. And they want to break his offensive against them. And so in verse 13 it says, Later, They sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch Him in His words. Now this is interesting. So they, now it's the nameless they, but probably somewhere behind here is the Sanhedrin, which is the highest supreme court of the the, uh, of the Jews, it's, it's the, the, the true, you know, the, the leaders, the chief mucky mucks, and they're, they're sending some folks to Jesus with and for the purpose of trapping Him. So they send some Pharisees who are, you know, steeped in the law. Those who have, 
been given or given themselves the responsibility of caring for and, and very carefully uh, protecting and guarding the law. And then you have these Herodians who are really a Jewish sect, which is a political party, which is connected to and, and finds its, um, you know, it's the party that supports Herod and his leadership of the Jewish people. It's, it's, it's a political party which has a particular uh, focus and attention that it has. All right? So, so we've got these two things. We've got the Pharisees and the Herodians who have come to catch him, literally to trap him. They're trying to trap Jesus. And it's interesting where they're trying to trap him in. They're trying to trap him in his words. Because his words have authority. Because his words have life. His words are kind of cutting through. And they're deeply disturbed by his words. Because those words have power. And and, and, and Jesus is literally, you know, to use the, the idiom, he's getting under their skin with his words. So they came to him and they said, teacher, now listen to this. I love, I mean, these guys are slick, right? Don't miss the slickness here. Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. All right? Well, that's true. At some level, they do know that he's a man of integrity. But, you know, they're not just saying that to flatter him or or to build him up. or, Or they're certainly not saying it to give him any kind of extra authority or influence. They're buttering him up because they're getting ready to fry him if they can. Okay? So they butter him up. They say, well, we know that you are a man of integrity and you aren't swayed by man. Because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with truth. Now, they're really laying it on here. Okay? They're not just, there's not just a little dab of butter. They're slapping it on now. Alright? And they're setting him up. They're trapping him. They're, They're hoping to catch him in his word. So here it comes. Now, here's the big question. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Oh, we got him. No way out. He's stuck no matter what he says. We got him on the horns of a dilemma and he can't wiggle free of this one. Again, just a little bit of context, a little bit of background. This is the poll tax. This is, remember in Luke 2, I mean, it all hangs together. If you read the Gospels, everything hangs together. Okay? So in Luke chapter 2, why is it, why do Joseph and Mary go to Bethlehem? What, what brings them there? Sent, what was it? 
the census. Okay? They went to Bethlehem because the Roman government, which is ruling over the people of Israel, was preparing to take to do a census, and they needed to know how many people there were, who was there. Why did they need that information? For the same reason that governments need that information today, so that they can tax correctly the population. And the poll tax, or the census tax, was a denarius. That was the tax which was about one day's labor that was going to be collected. So, that denarius is interesting. I don't obviously have one to bring before you this morning, but if you look up denarius on somewhere, wherever you'd look that up, you'd find out that a denarius, the coin denarius, a denarius coin, had the image of Caesar printed on it with words that basically spoke of the deity of Caesar. So this tax, which really was a tribute, that would be the technical term for what it is, a tribute, this was a tribute now to the hated Roman government who are occupying force over the people of Israel. And this tax was hated both on practical and spiritual terms. And yet, there were also accommodations that had been made to the tax. Interestingly enough, the tax was actually collected at the temple by the temple officials. And in so doing, they actually provided then it gave them some protection and covering for the temple activities. So, so there's some real tension points going on here. All right? And again, we got Pharisees and Herodians. Herodians who are at least implicitly supporting the Roman government. The Pharisees who are very much um, for the law and for the obviously for the sovereignty of God and, and for His rulership. And you've got all of these different things and, and they've sent and they've said, okay, Jesus, should we pay this tax or not? If you say yes, if you say yes, then everyone in the populace, the people, the, 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 just the, you know, the common person is going to rise up and say, Jesus, you are supporting the Roman government. But if Jesus says, don't pay the tax, you got a bunch of people who are just waiting to run to the Roman authorities and say, he is fomenting a rebellion against the empire. Either way, we've got him. He can't win. All right. But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. (laughs) Jesus 
was not surprised. He wasn't like saying, well, I don't, boy, oh boy, he didn't, didn't even scratch his head, did he? What am I going to do about that? He just said, why are you trying to trap me? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. Now, I like this. I mean, you know, Jesus wasn't carrying any around with him. When he's looking, he's he's looking at the temple officials who've been collecting the tax. (laughs) He knows they got some. (laughs) All right, you're complaining about this. You're trying to trap me. Well, why don't you bring me one? Let me look at it. And they brought the coin and he asked them, whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Now that's an accurate translation, portrait. Your translation may have other words there. I think, I think though, even though it's accurate, it sort of masks the underlying. So I want to... I wanna, insert another word in there for you because I think it's pretty critical to understanding the passage. What Jesus really asks here at at the heart of what he's asking is whose image is this? Whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. And Jesus said to them, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. The critical question this morning, as we're going through this kingdom shift process, and asking ourselves the question, who is your king? The critical question that I want to ask this morning is this. To whom is your allegiance? To whom is your allegiance? Now this parable, or not parable, this this account in Jesus' life of this event has provided us with some understanding of how we are to properly and appropriately relate to the state and to God. And let me just, I'm not going to spend hardly any time there at all this morning because I I feel impressed by God to go and and share something more specific with you as it relates to allegiance. But let's just very quickly remind ourselves, because Paul builds on this as well as uh, the Apostle Peter. Paul writes, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. There is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Submit yourself, Peter says, for the Lord's sake, to every authority instituted among men, whether the king is the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. So Jesus is saying, give to Caesar. He doesn't foment here a political rebellion. He says, give to Caesar what's Caesar's. Okay? Give the tax. Okay, you know, there's roads to be built. 
there's things to be done, you know, I mean, it's, and he's not even endorsing the Roman government per se, and saying, but he is endorsing the fact that there are authorities that are over our lives that are given, they're civil servants, they are intended to be servants of God, yes, they are intended to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right, when they don't do those two things, when they flip that, then it is an appropriate response to say, wait a minute... There is appropriate resistance that can be given, but in this case, that's not the fish that Jesus is seeking to fry. Because what he's really getting at here, what he's really trying to to get after is our proper allegiance to God. What does that look like? And he uses this word image very particularly because it would immediately bring back into the hearts and minds of his hearers a deeper reality and truth as it relates to the image. He says, this money that has the image of Caesar on it, well, that's his. But whose image is stamped on you? Whose image is stamped on your life? But God said, let us make man what? In our image in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created them male and female. He created them. So as a woman, as a man, you are created in God's image. You bear the image of God stamped upon your life. Paul goes after the same thing saying, you were also included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. When we come to Christ, the image of God in us is sealed by the Spirit of God. And we then represent, we represent Christ, who is the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Are you catching this? This is super important for us to get, particularly if we're going to understand right priorities, because it really has to do, again, the heart of this has to do with allegiance. And whose image our lives bear. Our coins, our money all bear an image. Various presidents and leaders and different ones. That's over here. But our lives and who we are, you bear the image of God. In you. So, what I would like to spend our time this morning, the remaining time that we have together, is on this. Come follow me. Life-changing encounters with Jesus. Because there was a transformation that took place in the lives of all of those who followed Jesus. And it came... And it, it unfolded, and, I, and what I, here's what I want to introduce to you this morning, is that there are three 
kinds of encounters that we have with Jesus. One is a power encounter where the question gets answered, who is in authority? Secondly, there are truth encounters when we encounter the question, who is right? Third, there are allegiance encounters which have to do with who is in control? And what I would submit to you this morning, using our passage as a, as a, as a springboard, is that Jesus, in our walk with Him through our life, we're going to have lifelong encounters with Jesus that have to do with this issue of allegiance. And I'm using allegiance here. We're going to talk about allegiance encounters as well as these power and truth encounters that happen along the way of our lives. So, if you've got, and you know, if you don't have anything to write on, find, maybe use, you know, you can turn in and email your Alan Ross piece in uh, for that, but if you want to use those, those lines there, um, you're never going to remember these if you don't write them down. Um, they will be posted on the website, but I would encourage you and invite you to write some of these down, because I think, I, I would like to invite you to, to go back through and dig into the scriptures that I'm sharing, and also the specific shifts that I am um, going to present to you this morning that I believe are, are, are specifically the word of the Lord to us this morning, individually and congregationally, okay? So, having said all that, let me, let me dive in, okay? You've heard me share this before. There are three calls that Jesus gives in our life. The first call is come to me. The second call is going to be come after me. We're going to get to that in a few moments. The third call is come with me. But the initial call is come to me. Jesus invites us into a relationship with him. We call it salvation. It's an invitation to a new identity, to actually a re-embracing of our identity as God's children that are created in his image. It's the invitation to salvation. Jesus says, come to me. When he says, come to me, there is an immediate power encounter that happens and the shift that goes on in our life is the shift from death to life. Before we come to Christ in salvation, whatever it is, we may be technically, physically, physically we're living and breathing and moving and walking around, but in reality, spiritually, we're dead. We can dress it up in all kinds of other words, but the reality is, we're dead. Jesus comes to bring life. And that is probably the most profound and powerful encounter that can ever happen in anyone's life, is the movement, the shift that happens, dislodging us from the grave to life. I tell you the truth, Whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. There are still some of you in this room who are over here in death because you've not yet responded to the call of salvation, the invitation to a new identity. And Jesus is here pleading with you this morning, saying, cross over. I want to invite you into life. With that, implicit 
and apart, and all of these are interrelated with one another, is the shift then that happens in the truth encounter. Initially, it's the, it's the movement then from deception to truth. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers, those who are still walking. They cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. But the good news is this. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus has made a way and He is the truth. He's not just, He is, He isn't just made a way. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And so we can cross over from deception to truth. When we say, Jesus, you're right. (laughs) You're right. You have authority to bring me from death to life, and you are right, and you can take me out of deception and bring me into truth. And here's the allegiance encounter, and here's you know the heart of what I'm sharing this morning has to do with this allegiance. To whom is our allegiance? There is an allegiance encounter. The Pharisees had an allegiance, but they had an allegiance to a religious structure. The Herodians had a had an allegiance, but it was to a political structure. Even the crowds had an allegiance, but the allegiance was to their own health and well-being, to their own livelihood and to their own, you know, kind of to their own concerns. But when we come to Jesus, there is a shift, there is an allegiance encounter that says, I'm going from being self-centered, where I'm at the center of my world, to God is at the center of my world. And that's huge. Jesus said to His disciples, if anyone would come after Me, He must deny Himself and take up His cross and follow Me. I've been thinking about this a lot this week in some conversations that I've had with some folks. This cross is not your circumstances. It's not your illnesses. It's not your, you know, your um, foreclosure on your house. It's not your boss that drives you crazy. It's not you know, your, your kids or your family or your spouse or anybody else. They're not your cross. The cross is, how am I going to respond to the life that I have been given? Will I do it out of self-centeredness or will I do it out of God-centeredness? Will I submit myself and surrender my life to Him? That's the cross. That's the cross. It's the cross of submitting ourselves to God in every situation and circumstance. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Come to me. Come after me. The call of discipleship. An invitation to a new maturity. God wants to take us and move us. Not, I mean, salvation is a wonderful thing. And it's a great gift. And it's a beginning. It's being born again. It's new birth. But it's tragic if a new baby stays a baby all their lives. There's intended to be growth. There's intended to be maturity. So what does that look like? What is this new maturity? What does this call of discipleship look like? First of all, In in terms of power encounter, it means a call out of bondage and into freedom. Jesus says, 
to the Jews who believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So, in essence, what he is saying is, as we mature in him, the shackles, the bondages, the things that have been on our lives, that have been authorities in our lives, Sometimes those can be addictions, those can be attitudes, those can be actions, those can be, you know, all kinds of different things can hold us in bondage. But he says, I want to break those off and bring you into freedom. Real, true freedom. Freedom that is offered culturally and by our world is a freedom that simply leads you into enslavement. It looks like freedom, it's not freedom at all. Truth encounter. The truth encounter, let me explain this, wants to move us from a place of disintegration into a place of integration. What is the definition of a healthy, whole human being? If you, if you talk to professionals who, who work with all of this time, they, they would say, it's, it's, the definition of that is a person who has an integrated who is an integrated human being, somebody who the various disparate pieces actually come together and create a certain wholeness in their lives. This is the process of maturity. Jesus, or I'm sorry, um, James puts it this way. He says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Here's that truth again from deception to truth. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. So what does that mean for you and me? It means that we don't simply go and we don't read the scriptures or we listen to the word this morning and then we go out and we live our lives as if none of that had any relevance to my life at all. That's kind of looking in the mirror and seeing, you know, um, if I were a woman, you know, makeup like all over my face in inappropriate places and walk away and say, oh well, and just go on and do my life, alright? Alright? That's not it. A person who is walking in maturity begins to integrate the Word into their lives. There is an integration that begins to take place. And so instead of our lives being fragmented and compartmentalized, sacred and secular, well, now I'm doing the God thing. I'm here on Sunday morning. Oh, thank goodness. You know, I got that checked off for the week. And now I can go back out and live my life. Did that. No. There's an integration. Is this making sense? You all all right? All right. So the allegiance encounter has to do then with moving from worldly values to kingdom values. The world has values. It does. Guess what? It does. It's everywhere. It saturates everything. So, 
Paul says, I urge you in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. You've heard this a thousand times, but here's the allegiance encounter that happens in the context of discipleship. As we begin to mature, as we mature... Our spiritual act of worship is offering ourselves to God and we no longer are conformed to the pattern of this world, but we begin to be transformed. The renewing of our mind, we begin to, again, integrate truth into our life and kingdom values begin to be lived out through us rather than the world's values. And the final invitation that Jesus gives to us, He says, come to Me salvation, receive a new identity, come after me, come and be my disciple, come experience a new maturity. Finally, he says, come with me. It's the call of intimacy. It's an invitation to a new destiny. It's an invitation to friendship with God. And the power encounter that happens here is a power encounter that moves us from self-effort to, self- to spirit empowerment. I know that this has been something God's been working in my heart and in my life over many, many years and continues to work that out always. But there's this continuous invitation of Him out of my self-effort and into His spirit empowerment. Out of what I can do to what He can do through me. Out of my strength and into His strength. Out of me and into Him. It's that same thing, out of death and into life. It's that place out of self-centered into God-centered. It's out of that place of self-effort, but it's just a deeper place that God wants to bring us. I'm not even going to tell the story. Many of you have heard, you know, God just totally, just incredibly um, impacted me with this particular scripture at a particular point in my life in ministry many years ago. has been sort of a ministry life verse for me since then. Galatians 3.3 I'll read all the way through five. Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? When God told me that scripture, I was didn't have a Bible in front of me. I was out in a park and it was raining and hailing on me, and I was broken before God. And I think His translation said, "Are you so stupid?" I'm pretty sure. Um, I'm pretty sure that's what I heard. After beginning in the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal through human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing, if it really was for nothing? Does God give you His Spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? Does God give His Spirit to you because you've done the, you know, jumped through the particular hoops that you thought that you were supposed to jump through and done all of that? Or does God give you His Spirit because you've surrendered your life to Him and said, Jesus, I can't do it! I need you! And that's a power encounter, people. That is a real power encounter because it really has to do with authority. Who's in charge here, you know? My self-effort or God? Critical issue. Truth encounter, from rules to relationship. I think a lot of times we think of, and, and, and you know, again, if you're thinking about parenting, you know, rules are important. They're very significant and they help to provide a framework for our lives. There comes a point where that framework needs to be so embedded in who we are. It's, a, it's, 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 you know, there's a transformation that's become come in our mindsets, where we're no longer simply looking for rules, 
you know, well, everything in, in, in sort of this nice structure. It's real safe. Rules are wonderful. They're real safe. People, everybody, I mean, I've been a pastor for 27 years. People just want me to tell them what to do. And I'm happy to tell you what to do, all right? (laughs) But God really wants you to learn how to interact with Him and begin to learn how in relationship with Him. That's, that's, That's the intimacy that He's longing for in your life. And I've discovered that God's, you know as I'm in this journey with him, you know, there's a certain safety and comfort in rules, but the real fun begins in relationship. That's where things really get exciting. You're my friends if you do what I command. So, yeah, we got to follow the commands. we got to be obedient. I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for everything I learned from my Father I've made known to you. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Well, that doesn't mean, well, I, you know, this isn't slot machine Jesus. Whatever I ask, ooh, hey, I'm asking, Lord. I'm putting in my coin. Some kind of mechanistic, well, Lord, I've, you know, I've done this, and I've done, I've done this, and I've done, I've done this, and I've done, uh, I've done this, oh, yeah, I've done this. I have earned this. Lord, help you. Lord, help me. We don't earn anything. We receive gifts from our, our beloved who, who wants to call us into friendship. And when we're in friendship with him, the things we're going to ask for are the things that are in his heart. And he's going to say yes. Allegiance encounter, independence to radical trust. At the end of John 21, one of the most poignant passages of Scripture in all of the Bible, Jesus, Peter has denied Jesus three times before Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus dies on the cross, he raises again, and then he goes and he has breakfast with the disciples. This is a whole sermon unto itself, all right? I'm not going to preach the sermon. I'll just tell you this, that he comes and, he, and, and, and Jesus comes and meets with Peter and the other disciples. Peter's gone back to fishing. And Peter's three times has denied Jesus. And now Jesus has this encounter with him. It's moving Peter from independence. Because Peter had said, I'll never deny you. Hours later. When they'd finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted. But when you're old, you're going to stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you don't want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which, Jesus would, by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. Now here's what Jesus was inviting Peter into. He was inviting him into a life of radical trust in him. Peter, there's going to come a place when you no longer are going to be leading your own life. I am going to lead your life for you and through other people. I'm going to be leading. And there's this incredible shift that has to happen in Peter's heart. Recently, I've been reflecting a lot 
on Isaiah 42.16. shared this with the elders yesterday morning. Been talking about it, been praying about it, been meditating on it. Isaiah, the prophet, says, I will lead the blind by ways they've not known. Along unfamiliar paths I will guide them. I will turn the darkness into light before them and make the rough places smooth. These are the things I will do. I will not forsake them. And a pastor friend of mine sent me this verse, and he said, I think what God is calling us to do is to actually take comfort in our blindness and to embrace our blindness in such a way that we recognize our blindness in order that we hold that much more deeply onto the elbow of Jesus as he leads us forward. There's a deep radical trust that the Lord is trying to build in us, individually and corporately. He is leading us on unfamiliar paths. We don't know where we're at or always where we're going. He is leading us in ways that we have not known before. But the promise is this. He will turn darkness into light. He will make rough places smooth. And He will not forsake us when we trust in Him. Friends may forsake us. Our very own life, our flesh itself may fail us. But God, as as Chris just said, God quoted the Scripture, God is the strength of my life. He is my portion forever. I can trust in Him. Stand up if you would, please, if you're physically able, and just open your hands. We close this morning. There's kids to be picked up. There's... Lunches to go be eaten. There's family time. There's Alpha this evening. Five o'clock. Don't miss it. It's wonderful stuff. God's doing great things. Great things. Keep praying. We had five or six uh, Alpha for ESOL folks that accepted Christ last Sunday night. So keep on praying. Keep pressing. Keep pressing. God's doing something. Among us, don't just kind of, oh yeah, well, that's still going on. Great. No, press in. Surround in prayer. God's doing mighty things. Please just open your hands. Hmm. Jesus, we just come before you in humility with open hands, a posture of surrender. If you're here this morning and you want to step from death to life, if you've never accepted Christ and you would like to make that step today, if you would like to receive Him into your life, Your hands are open if you would like to lift a hand up or even two and just say, Jesus, I need you. I welcome you into my life. If you've never taken that step and you'd like to take that step of salvation today, receive that new identity in Him, would you lift up your hands right now to the Lord? Lift them up high if you've not taken that commitment and would like to this morning. If you're here this morning and you've been, maybe you've experienced salvation, but you've never really stepped into maturity and discipleship and begun to walk the walk, you realize that your life is still disintegrated. It hasn't really been integrated around the Word of God and the kingdom values, and you've not really stepped into freedom, and there's still bondages in your life that 
need to be broken and you recognize this morning and you want to invite that next step, would you take the hands that are, that are already open and would you lift them up to the Lord right now? Would you lift them up and Lord, say, Jesus, I just want to be your disciple. I want to follow you. I want to come after you this morning. Please lift up your hands and lift them up high. Say, I want to come after you, Jesus. Say it with me. I want to come after you, Jesus. You're here this morning and maybe you've walked with the Lord for some time and you realize that you're still somewhat stuck in a place of a certain level of maturity, but there's a deeper place of intimacy that you're sensing the Lord calling you into. You realize that you've done a lot of self-effort. You've been really comforted by the rules and you um, have have really, um, in terms of that allegiance with, you know, you're, you're still at some level walking in independence and there's a place, a deeper place of radical trust that you're sensing the Lord taking you into. It's unfamiliar paths. It's off the page. I was talking about that with the elders. You know, it's like we're off the old maps that had certain territories marked out and then it just had blank spaces and you feel like you're off the map. You're out of, you know, but you're, you're saying, God, I just want to trust you deeper and I want... Lord, um, to walk in intimacy and friendship with you and to the destiny you have. If you're just at that point, would you hold up your hands high to say, Lord, I need... And just say together with me, I want to come with you, Jesus. I want to come with you, Jesus. Lord God, hear the response of your people this morning. For those who are saying, I want to come to you, Jesus. Together we say, we want to come to you, Jesus. We want to come to you, Jesus. For those that are crying out and saying, I want to come after. Together we say, we want to come, we want to come after you, Jesus. We want to come after you, Jesus. For those that are crying out and saying, I want more to this. I want intimacy with Him. I want friendship with God. I want to go into deeper with Him. I want to go into deeper radical trust with Him. Together can we say, we want to come with You, Jesus. We want to come with You, Jesus. So Lord, I bless my friends and my brothers and sisters this morning, God, in all of the places that You are inviting us. And Lord, for those that are still hearing the call but not yet sure of their response, we love them and pray, God, that You would just carefully surround them with your comfort and grace. There is no shame here in that this morning. There's simply the ongoing invitation to say, come, 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 come. So glad that you've come this morning here and heard. Let the word continue to penetrate, penetrate lives and hearts this morning. And now I pray that the immeasurable love of God the Father the irresistible mercy and grace of Jesus Christ the Son and the inexhaustible strength and power of the Holy Spirit will be with you and yours as you go from this house to your house, sent to make disciples of all nations. May His favor, the banner of His favor and goodness be over your lives until we gather again, either in this house or in our eternal home. May the blessing of the Lord be upon you. People who have been stamped with the very image of the living God, go reflecting and representing that image of Jesus Christ our Lord. In His name I pray. Amen. Amen. Go in His grace. God bless you. Share His love with one another. See you tonight, 5 o'clock. God bless.